you can't half ass two things. You have to whole ass one thing. I think I got too excited when I first kind of realized that you could do all these cool things out there. Once I spent a year just working solidly on the Substack, that's when it was much easier to turn these other projects into actual things and so much better. <laughs> Welcome to the Substack podcast, where we have conversations with independent writers, bloggers, thinkers, and creatives of every background. Hey, Erin, thanks for coming on the Substack podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you write a publication called Dari Murut Kemlut. Did I say that correctly? Pretty close, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is a shortcut to Southeast Asia. Uh, you report on news and analysis and features from across the region. Yes. All right. I thought it was cool that you mentioned the meaning of your publication it's such a great term. It's it comes from um, Indonesian, and Indonesian has all these sort of brilliant idioms. So Darimulat Kemulut is uh, literally translates to from mouth to mouth, but it's used more as like both word of mouth and gossip. So I thought it was perfect for what I was kind of wanting to do. Yeah, I mean, I think it plays really well into this very conversational writing style that you have, which it actually feels like someone is just learning from someone on the ground, the sort of gossip, but then with like a deeper reporting lens. Yeah. Well, that's definitely the aim. <laughs> great. It's coming across great. Um, love to hear just a little bit about your background and how you got here. I know you've had experience writing and covering the Southeast Asia region for a while. Yeah. Um, I started uh, the newsletter very on in the career, actually. I was initially probably like a lot of Substack users started off on Tiny Letter um, years ago. And I was working for um, one of, in Jakarta, one of the English daily newspapers there. Um, and it was really interesting to be in what's probably one of the biggest cities in the world in such a fascinating region and really struggling to find news from elsewhere within Southeast Asia. So that kind of inspired it. Um, so I kind of was just reporting on Indonesia, but there'd be all these links between Indonesia and Singapore or Malaysia or the Philippines. But you'd have to go to, you know, a Singapore news website to find out more about that aspect or a Filipino news website to find out more about them. Um, so I really just wanted to bring it all together in one place so it's easier for everybody else. Can you give us just a little bit of, I guess, context for people that don't live in Southeast Asia? Like what is the coverage like there right oh, now? Yeah. No, that's a good question. I'm very uh, shorthand about it now <laughs> after a few years. Um, so it's uh, it's kind of based around the ASEAN block, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, um, which is kind of vaguely the European Union of Southeast Asia. Um, and that's, I can list them all if you like. <laughs> Curious. Yeah, why not? Yeah. So we go Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Brunei, uh, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Myanmar. And I also include Timor-Leste in there, which um, is not yet a member of ASEAN, but um, I really hope one day they will be. So, yeah, I'd like to include them in there as well. So you're in Indonesia, but you're covering Southeast Asia. Uh, do you, Are there other sorts of outlets that do this sort of regional focus? How did you decide where to narrow or expand your scope since you could be reporting just on Jakarta, you could be reporting on the whole region. Um, I think Jakarta was really, or is really interesting um, because it's home to ASEAN. So it's got the secretariat that there and, you know, kind of the areas that I've lived in, in Jakarta is very close to there. So um, ASEAN 
is probably more prominent in Jakarta than it is anywhere else in Southeast Asia. So that really piqued my interest. Um, I'm, you know, from Australia and we don't really hear that much about ASEAN. Um, so I kind of just followed that for a while and then uh, it was a bit half interested and half kind of just seeing that there was a gap there that a newsletter could fill. Do you feel, I, I guess I'm just imagining if you were, you know, a newspaper with employing 50 people or whatever, you'd be able to yeah. cover an entire region. For you personally, uh, as an independent writer, how are you finding new sources and things to write about in areas that you aren't physically in? I think it's, it's sort of really, really difficult. Um, so I've been doing this now for about four years, I think, with the last two and a half on Substack. Um, so the first year was really uh, I'll never go back and reread old newsletters. It would be a cringe. <laughs> never read your old <laughs> Exactly. But um, I think as I've been lucky to be in the region when there have been kind of momentous occasions. So I've been here for huge elections and um, important movements with the ASEAN bloc. So it's, I don't know, there's always something happening. And when that's reported on by some of the brilliant journalists from across the region, it's uh, it kind of paints the broader picture of how how the region got here. Um, and I'm very lucky that I get to travel so much because of how kind of close-knit, well, until recently, of course, because <laughs> um, of how close-knit the region is. It's really easy to get from Jakarta to Singapore to Singapore to Bangkok or over to Manila just for a couple of days. And I don't know, it, it feels exciting. Everybody wants to talk about what they're covering, uh, what they're reporting on, what they're reading, and just buy a couple of beers and soak that up. It's, yeah. I'm picturing almost like this, I mean, really like a literal manifestation of the name of your publication. Yeah. Of, <laughs> Pretty like, much, yeah. It's just sort of like passing on through word of mouth from <laughs> friends and things in different countries. Exactly, and it's really cool because it just starts off being um, journalists who whose work I've kind of noticed over the years and will go now out of my way to, if I say their byline, I'll definitely be clicking on it and reading that. And everybody's so nice and friendly. So just send an email, hey, I'm coming to KL, and they'll be like, great, see you on Wednesday. <laughs> Do you find that that process of, I guess, getting new information and talking to people and having sources, is it different from, do you approach it differently as it's your newsletter, you can write about what you want versus... Um, yeah working as a journalist at a, at a newspaper? Yeah, no, definitely. I think like that more traditional, I've been thinking about this recently kind of as the industry changes dramatically over the last few weeks. Um, I don't think like, yeah, it doesn't compare to regular kind of on the ground reporting in that um, the people that I call up and have quick conversations with are always, you know, academics who have covered a particular niche for, for decades or, uh, other journalists who are just pointing me in the right direction of which books to be catching up on. It's not so much uh, getting out there and talking to regular people, which is one thing that I genuinely miss, um, and it's not so much, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's, a, it's not as grinding, which is, <laughs> which is good. It's not the same kind of deadlines are self-imposed, so it can be a bit more flexible. You mentioned everything that's been happening the past couple of weeks as you were explaining that, and which obviously could refer to <laughs> a lot of different things right now, given that we're, we're in the middle of it all. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen, just because I live in my own bubble of, at least here in the US, there's been a lot of talk just about like yeah. media 
outlets shutting down and mm. laying off workers and stuff, is that something that is also being experienced abroad? Uh, is the world of foreign news and journalism different I think, in any way? From- yeah, what we've seen, foreign journalism, I think, probably copped a bigger hit from the more broad collapse of print media in the last decade or two decades or however long it is now, um, then it will during this particular crisis. There used to be um, dozens of foreign journos in all of the, the major cities in Southeast Asia and that's not a not really a thing anymore, um, But we, which is a bummer. But on the other side of that, I think we're also seeing um, Western outlets, and I see that with US, Australian and European ones particularly, that are a lot more, and I think it's pushed by editors, a lot more interested and uh, more trusting of having local reporters report on their own countries, which is a brilliant thing for for someone like me who wants to really get to know the, uh, the news. It's much, it makes a lot more sense to have, you know, a someone who's from Jakarta speaks fluent English and fluent Indonesian and knows the backstory of every politician to be covering Indonesian politics than someone that's just been dropped in um, for, for three years and then moved on to wherever else is next, um, which isn't to say that there isn't brilliant uh, foreign reporting coming out of us foreigners. <laughs> I think some of the most interesting stuff comes out of uh, when you arrive in a new place and you can truly see how different something is, which I think is a problem that I face when I try to report on Australia. I think it's a problem a lot of people face when they report in their own thing. Um, but I think uh, we are heading into a really, really exciting time for Southeast Asia journalism where, uh, yeah, there's just going to be more and more brilliant local journalists rising and I think that should be applauded this might be a really dumb question, but it's only because I don't know anything about this topic. Uh, why didn't they employ more local correspondents before, or why? Like, why did that? Yeah. Why is that a shift? No, I I think that's a fair question because I'm I think it's probably a diverse answer across Southeast Asia. I, I definitely can't speak for anywhere else, but because of how this is <laughs> this is a pretty deep one, um, because of how colonialism worked across the region, there are some countries that are much more uh, confident in speaking other languages. Uh, like like Singapore's language is English and Philippines, great English because of the Americans and Malaysia because of the English. But then for countries like Indonesia where there was no, you know, not everybody spoke Dutch anyway and English was great but it's not at the same level that it is now, it's, would have been seen as a much better move for uh, desks back in back in the olden days to send journalists from London or Sydney over to do it and work with um, local reporters who probably could have just done it themselves, to be honest. <laughs> Cut it. As I asked the question, I realised I was probably walking into a very history lesson. <laughs> no, there's, um, there's so much interesting conversations that come out of that because all around the region, like so many of my good friends that I – catch up with kind of across the across the whole place are, you know, are Thai or Indonesian or Filipino and they have the most brilliant takes on this sort of stuff. So, yeah, if, if you are, if any listeners are interested in that, search out more because there's a lot of brilliant conversation around 
um, foreign journalists, foreign correspondents, and who can do it and who should be doing it. Hmm. How are like the newer correspondents making themselves known? I think it's t- they- yep. It's tough because uh, especially in the very very big cities, especially in like Manila and Bangkok and Jakarta, where it's tough to rise to the top just because the pool is so big. Um, but I think the answer is the same everywhere, and it's Twitter, <laughs> which is <laughs> the magical the better beast, or worse. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. I mean, we see so many Substack writers that come in from these sort of like other public platforms where yeah. they've built an audience on Twitter or we've seen like, you know, Instagram, um, uh, LinkedIn, surprisingly. Oh, whoa, Just yeah. like, I mean, wherever. So like, I mean, you, you're building sort of this audience elsewhere and then people are sort of excited and engaged with you there. And then Substack sort of becomes this place to say, okay, like I have a following, I have fans and like, come talk to me over here in this like sort of more semi-private place so yeah. i see it as sort of like one step kind of leads to the other which is yeah nice. like it's oh yeah no that's always amazing like anytime i see someone i don't know announce their their new sub stack and i've got hundreds of hundreds of retweets and i'm like damn all right <laughs> going straight for it yeah really more of those happening lately too which is yeah. great oh, yeah. um you so you write a newsletter, but then you also have a weekly column and then you also have a podcast. Is that right? Yes. Podcast is on hiatus at the moment just because, uh, <laughs> um, it's, well, I've had to come back to Australia and it is pretty crazy over there in poor Jakarta. So we're just on break for a moment, but we'll be back. <laughs> um, and yet the weekly column with the diplomat is very similar to the Substack. um, publication actually but just with less jokes and a bit more serious <laughs> it's your professional face yeah exactly <laughs> do you like having this balance of lots of different projects like this is something I really like about a lot of writers having you can sort of express yourself in lots of different ways it's fun isn't it and you can I don't know I feel like what's that thing it's like you can't half ass two things you have to whole ass one thing I think I got too excited when I first kind of realized that you could do all these cool things out there. Once I spent a year just working solidly on the Substack, that's when it was much easier to turn these other projects into actual things and so much better. <laughs> Actually worked yeah. out that time. Yeah. How do you feel about sort of expressing yourself through writing on a newsletter and writing a pod or speaking on a podcast? Yeah. Like what are the, how do those two things compare for you? Oh, I think it's very different. I, I don't, I think I'm, always just going to be like a natural writer. Um, It's just easy to self-edit and work out what you're saying. And even, even with the podcast that I do with, with my friends at general media, which is Indonesia done line line, they'll kill me if I don't shout it out. Even then it's um, very, Oh, I don't know. Just very nervous. But with, when you write, you don't have that. You sit in your bedroom and if it didn't work out, you can just restart and send it an hour late. (laughs) <laughs> it's true I, I do feel like I don't know if other people feel this way but I feel like I can so many people are like either one or the other of like yeah. really love expressing themselves through words and typing and really love expressing themselves and speaking in person I tend to get a lot more tongue-tied speaking which makes writing a lot more appealing oh, for sure for sure I think it's a total skill to be able to just do that natural sounding podcast thing I don't know I'm not there yet I'd like to be there but <laughs> I don't know. We're getting there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and on Diamond Mullet, you also have different kinds of 
posts, right? So you have um, the Monday email that kind of goes out that's uh, keeping people informed about the news. And then you have these dedicated feature posts that you send out. Um, how did you decide on this sort of editorial strategy of different different types of posts for different types of readers? How does that work for you as a writer and for your audience? This is going to sound like I'm probably sucking up a bit too much to Substack. <laughs> but, um, oh, please. <laughs> um, so the, the Monday one, that's usually really, really long and quite intensive that takes me a, a full day to write and it's 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 still a bit fun but it is very serious sort of um because uh, a lot of the a lot of the stories like, even with the last few months with the pandemic prior to that a lot of the stories in the region are horrible atrocities <laughs> um and that makes it really difficult to write about so things like that very serious in tone and that's pulled out for uh that's a premium one for the paid subscribers and uh when I was trying to work out how I wanted this to look exactly it was right at that time that uh, I think Hamish sent out a big email recommending the best way to do it for everybody the the scheduling where it was something like one premium and then two free ones a week and that's kind of what I've been aiming for since and that's been perfect I think that's worked really well um with the pandemic though I'm trying to publish at least three times a week and that's mostly just free because it's so important yeah, I'd love to hear more about that um just because the pandemic is affecting a lot of people in different ways yeah. uh, how's I've noticed you've done more COVID related reporting now yeah has that like was that does it feel like it's just another hot issue that maybe has this extended period of coverage or does it feel like you're actually like thinking, having to think about things in a different sort of way? That's interesting because when it, when it first kind of started, because Southeast Asia was the first region outside of China to, um, to have known cases. So that kind of began for us, I think, in January, Thailand confirmed its first case, late January. Um, and then the Philippines was the first death outside of China. So it's kind of a beat that this region's been on for I don't, probably only a, a few weeks sooner than, than Europe, but it feels like a lot longer. Um, and initially it seemed like it was just another big, big story and it would be something that we'd that I'd be covering, you know, f- for the next few months but alongside the regular um, news that we get out of here and then it very very quickly just dominated everything and it I don't see it kind of uh, coming back from that for a few more months yet which is interesting because then you've also got um, some really important stories that have just been totally buried by this that um, is hard to I don't know like I know it's out there but you can't find it because the the reporting isn't there which is um, a bummer, but I understand. <laughs> um, so that's part of the reason why I've started commissioning um, original pieces from other reporters in the region, um, particularly for areas that are underreported completely, because we do see a lot of areas that there just aren't. There's either horrible um, free, uh, media restrictions or uh, they're just kind of seen as too small, too insignificant, I guess, to be covering. Um, yeah, so I've started commissioning pieces around coronavirus in those sorts of areas to kind of fill that gap. That's really interesting. I saw that you did one in, I think, Laos, is that right? Or- yes, yeah, the, yeah. I got another one from that same writer running today, which is amazing because Laos is 
alongside North Korea, one of the only two media black spots in uh, in Asia, which is weird because it's still got bigger press freedom, larger, pre- larger, I don't know, stronger press freedoms than um, Vietnam, but still <laughs> that's what um, reporters that borders says. And it's just really, really hard to get a real idea of what this pandemic actually looks like uh, and so you're saying, out there, yeah. You call them media black spots in the sense that there just isn't enough coverage there's for just, those regions? Yeah, or? there's nothing coming out of there. They've got uh, Laos. Laos is probably the, the hardest one to cover because um, <laughs> there's, there's Radio Free Asia, which has been there for a while, but there's also uh, a bit of uh, some people don't, really enjoy having Radio Free Asia speak for um, countries like Laos, given its history. But at the same time, it's one of the only ones there that can report on some of these huge stories. Laos is integral to kind of China's dominance in the region. And if Radio Free Asia is the only one that's going to do it or Voice of America, then that's, yeah, just the way it has to be because there's no local media or at least not not large local media, I should say, rather. Do you think there are ways in which the, being an independent writer, an independent reporter can be an advantage in this sense? Because it's, and I, I know you saw, you said this uh, correspondent is anonymous, which I don't know if that's uh, for specific reasons or not, but um, so without revealing the identity of this person or anything like that, um, is it is there an advantage to, okay, well, I know someone who lives in this region, it's being underreported, but like I have a following, I have an audience and you know, we can sort of like directly yeah. kind of pipe this in instead of trying to go through these outlets that yeah, definitely. Maybe are not it's, serving them. Yeah, well. very easy to sneak under the radar. Plus, I know, like, it, it's it's hard for kind of I don't know the big mastheads to take a punt on on a country like Laos or an issue like coronavirus in Laos. <laughs> but for me, I already know that my audience is interested. They've signed up specifically for news on countries like Laos. So for me, it's, yeah, easy to sneak under the radar and I know people are interested. So it's a no-brainer for me, I think. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you, um, because you're serving readers in a bunch of different countries, even if it is all the same region, do you find that like readers are interested in stuff from different countries or do they kind of just want to hear from their own country? That's an interesting question. I did a bit of a a shout-out. Oh, shout-out. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Um, I sent an email around to premium subscribers last week or the week before um, because I'd kind of noticed that I hadn't sent a, a premium one, like members only one for, for a few weeks because it's all been coronavirus. And I said, like, um, I want to keep, you know, help reporting for the premium audience. So what is it that you're interested in? What do you want to be hearing about um, at the moment? And it was really interesting that, uh, the array of people who responded kind of I think is probably pretty representative of my audience. So it was a couple of Australians that have lived and worked in the region for a long time, a few young ASEAN nationals who have uh, studied abroad and have since returned to the region or are still studying, and just a couple of friends just being like, oh, hey, yeah, sounds cool. Um, <laughs> and that was really interesting because they're – I don't know. It was mostly just like I want to hear what's happening with human rights um, 
I want to hear about is there, I think we've kind of seen this around the world, but um, some not so great politicians using the pandemic as a cover to force through some more, uh, I don't know, some problem, <laughs> some, how do I put this? Some uh, kind of draconian laws or exploiting this to stamp out and kind of demonise dissidents, which we see in a couple of countries in the region a lot anyway. So this is an easy way to exploit that crisis. Or um, more about the block itself, like as a body, um, which was interesting to me. There was nothing about like what is it like for expats in Hanoi or how do I get home from Singapore or whatever. They're, I really appreciate that my audience is very interested in the region, not in how the region affects them and their own country. Hmm. And that's, that's that goes as well for, the, for readers that I know are ASEAN nationals. It's not how does Indonesia perform compared to Thailand or whatever. It's very like what is my country's place in this region and what does that look like overall? And it, I don't know. I think that's very cool. I'm very grateful for that. It's sort of an advantage of having this regional focus too mm. that allows you to sort of zoom out and be a little bit more holistic in the stories that you talk about. Oh, that's a good awesome. way to put it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned this sort of like responses you got as this microcosm of what you see on your list, which reminded me, I hadn't even asked you, like, how did you grow your list early on? I don't know. It cracks me up because it's literally by word of mouth and that's the name of the newsletter. <laughs> right. Everything comes back with the title again. <laughs> um, so when I first started and I think uh, I was still like, I don't know, I still think of myself as like a bit of a baby journalist, but I was very much a baby journalist then, like less than two years in Jakarta, no idea what I was doing sort of thing. So I didn't have all that much credibility then. So initially the list was just uh, friends and friends of friends, I think, especially friends who have, um, like Australian friends who've studied or travelled or lived in the region, they were particularly interested. Most other people weren't. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me was the consistency to be pumping it out continuously and just getting a bit better at it. Like, I don't know, because it's not just like getting better at getting it out on time. You just have to know your shit a little bit better each time as well. And that was a tough <laughs> thing. That Like there is a lot of learning curves when you're looking at 11 different countries all with incredible histories and incredible presence. <laughs> um, and once that kind of started building credibility a little bit, it got pushed by a few people that were really, really helpful. Um, so especially the um, Alan and Rashad from Splice Newsroom, which is a Singapore uh, kind of media they do uh, original reporting about media in the region or help newsrooms in the region kind of bring in membership programs and that sort of thing. And I think having their, I don't know, their stamp of approval really helped a lot in establishing that credibility um, as well as a few of the the think tankers and foreign coros who've shared it on Twitter. Every time that happened there'd be 100 new <laughs> people on that, which is good. Always a great strategy. Yeah, and you. So you wrote for. Let's. You started in twenty sixteen. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. 
And then you went paid or you added paid subscriptions about two years into that, um, mm-hmm. which I think is around the time you also joined Substack. Um, yes, what made yeah, you decide I to go? Um, well, this is weird because I started, I hadn't heard of Substack until a very good friend of mine, um, Anand, who used to work for Coconuts Jakarta but has since moved back home uh, to the U.S., and he started Indonesia Intelligencer with them, which is a paid subscription looking at um, Indonesia very, very in-depth. And I hadn't heard of Substack and he told me about it and I was like, oh, shit, I'm doing that. And I just jumped straight over. And I've since taken over his job, so thank you, Anand, twice. <laughs> um, and I just I think it got to the point where I was – doing so many and I was getting consistent and it was, I was learning so much and I was working very, very hard that it kind of became a bit of a weird, I was like, do I really want to be working on this 20 hours a week for nothing apart from like, I don't know, a bit of credibility when I pitch somewhere. So I think Substack came around, well, I came to Substack at the perfect time for, for leveling myself up there. Did you find that there was maybe like a trajectory of, you mentioned you started when you were super early in your writing and in, in your journalism career. And then, and I guess there was some sort of mutual transference of credibility as you were mm. writing more and having this newsletter. And then there kind of is this point, it sounds like where it's like, you've, you've, the, you've gotten some measure of credibility early on, but then it's sort of this like next phase of, well, now if I'm putting 20 hours a week into this, then maybe there's something. That's it. That's what it became like, of, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, turning it into like a part-time job as opposed to like just something you do <laughs> instead of a hobby, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about like there's sort of like this reputational or credibility benefit that comes and then and then at some point it's like, okay, I, I get that, but then yeah. <laughs> I'm still putting a lot of time and work into this. Um, yeah, I think that's maybe oh. – this is like anti-advice because <laughs> I think this is where a few – newsletters might go a bit wrong where it's like there's and I love the advice that Substack gives about this because you can't just be like I'm doing this and here's the paywall you're like no you do have to establish that very quickly and if you're someone like I'm going to say his last name wrong Matt Tabe 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 yeah like he's got his credibility built in but if you're someone like me (laughs) you've got to kind of just hustle it out for a little bit longer than than maybe you'd like to yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to, to hear you say that because I think it's it's really it's that's not anti advice. That's good advice. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And, because I mean, we see all sorts of people come to Substack, right? And some Ooh. people are have huge audiences elsewhere, like I mentioned, of you know, big Twitter followers or yeah, whatever, yeah. and then they come here, and this is just sort of the natural next step. And they've already built that audience somewhere, yep. and that audience, some some portion of that audience is going to follow them to Substack. Yeah. Um, but then some people join Substack and are really just starting from scratch and building a list from literally zero and like the way that they need to think about growing their publication is just going to be different from yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah. And what um, I really like about Substack is that it's, it's not just like, okay, here's a platform, go have fun now. Like the, I don't know. I feel like Hamish is in my inbox more than anyone, but the, <laughs> and you now. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, um, it's not just about, I don't know. I really, really appreciate that there's so much helpful advice and and ideas about how you can build it and 
I don't know, work out what it is that exactly that you want from it. Cause it'd be so easy to just be like, okay, this is the platform to use, but I don't know. I really appreciate that. I think that's, it's definitely helped to me a lot. Um, cool. I'm glad to hear that. You're, you're now also being a part of it. Yes, <laughs> I've made it. But, um, I think that that's actually more unsolicited advice. Actually read the emails from Substack. That helps a lot. <laughs> Yes, I will support that <laughs> as an occasional writer of those emails. Please read our emails. They're important. And the threads, the threads are amazing. Like uh, for one, it's incredible to read what all these different people are doing with their newsletters. Like some of them are so obscure and amazing, but so much helpful advice from a lot of people that have been in the same position. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I mean, after having conversations with Bryce, you start to hear when you said be consistent, I sort of smiled to myself because it's something that I've heard a lot of people yeah. say. And it feels <laughs> like this really an intangible thing where some you know, someone's trying to grow their list and they're like, What, just keep writing? Like that's not the answer. That's like, no, that actually is that's, that's a huge part of the answer. And, <laughs> and it's funny weird. that so many different people arrive on that in like their yeah. own separate ways, regardless of what they're writing about. It's just like that yeah. is a really big thing. Um yeah, it's fun. I I actually just did a thread this morning today or something like that. Uh, and I saw like two folks on there, like they each write newsletters about watches, like <laughs> timekeeping time watches. And they like found each other on the thread. And I was oh, like, that's oh, awesome. okay. bringing people together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all people write about all sorts of things, which is great. Yeah. It's so cool. Uh, how did you decide you were talking a little about paywall stuff. So like, how did, how did you decide which of your posts you were going to make free and which ones you're going to be paid? Like where, where the value lies? And did you experiment with different things before? Or? Yeah. And I'm lucky. I've got, um, a very, very smart, angry <laughs> friend who's a businesswoman. So she was really like, this is what you got to do. I was like, oh, thank God for Elena. Fantastic. We um, all need a friend like that. Exactly. Um, and it was very clear to me that the, I think I had to work out what my what my base was, my, what my audience is, and the people that pay overwhelmingly are people that work somehow in the Southeast Asia area. So that's either um, like people that work at think tanks or academics or uh, risk analysts or whatever. They're the ones that pay. So it made sense kind of once I talked it out with, with my pal that um, the – the really in-depth long ass one on Monday, which goes into every big story of every country would be the one that's actually, I shouldn't say actually valuable, but the one that's valuable, the one that people will pay for. Um, and then the kind of the, the side ones are more just stuff that I'm really interested in for one day. <laughs> so that's, yeah, kind of just how I broke it down. Yeah, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the side projects. Um, you did like this spinoff newsletter, Iola. Uh, yeah, Iola. My pronunciation here, but, <laughs> um, but the, just to cover the Indonesian elections. And then it sounded like the elections happened. And then you're like, I'm going to keep this spinoff project to continue to cover other elections, which I thought was just cool. We don't have a ton of examples, but I love finding examples of writers that are doing spinoff newsletters. Um, uh, so yes, please inspire yeah. other people to do it. <laughs> I loved it. And then kind of the Indonesian election happened and then, that was it. I was like, okay, that's the last election for a while in the region. So that's kind of, yeah, very much on hiatus at the moment. But because um, the in, last year was a big year. Indonesian election happened around the same time as the Philippine midterms, which is huge, and the Thai election, which was very complicated and messy in a different way. Um, so between the three of them, 
those elections were taking up way too much space <laughs> in the in the regular newsletter. So it just made a lot more sense to just pull it out and do it somewhere else. Um, because, yeah, there'd be days, weeks where it'd be like 3,000 words, which is kind of double what I aim for, just because so much happened in Indonesia in the last four days on the election. I'm like, oh, God. So <laughs> pulling it out made a lot more sense and that's something I want to continue doing, but I, I don't know. It's going to be weird. We don't really have um, – we've got two elections this year. One's definitely happening, one I'm not sure about in Myanmar, um, and that will definitely be coming back. <laughs> I see. Interesting. But that one's totally free as well. I don't think that's worth – I think I see that more as uh, as feeding people towards the main one rather than a uh, standalone side project, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, we have another writer, Walt Hickey, who does, he has his uh, main newsletter, which is sort of a data lens on the news. And then he does a whole bunch of different side projects and is like very vocal about this being a really great thing, which yeah. I think is a great thing. Um, and he talks about it in a similar way of these these side projects sort of feed in, in mutual directions um, back to my main list. And kind of the nice thing about having a main list and then spinning off into side projects is you like automatically have an audience for this yeah. sort of like side project, right? Absolutely. Um, oh, all right. I'm going to search him out. <laughs> oh yeah. We actually have a post, but I'll send it to you. Oh, after great. Um, Cheers. <laughs> he talks about this a little bit more. Um, and how did you decide on pricing for uh, Dari Muluk and Muluk? Uh, this is just another thing. I, I'm, yeah. No, pricing we have we have a minimum price, but then I'm sure for pricing for different markets that aren't necessarily, they yeah. might just have a, a different scale. Um, yeah. How did, how did you work? No, that's a good point. I, I started off with the, I'm not sure if it's still like the kind of the, the, the default, but I started with the $5, $50 thing. And then that same angry businesswoman friend told me to put it to seven and 70, but that seemed crazy to me. So I just split the difference and went six sixty. But um, <laughs> really split the difference. <laughs> but I I agree. I think uh, I, I I think pricing people out of the market's a bummer anyway, and it's especially so in Southeast Asia where I don't want Southeast Asian people to not be able to read about their own region. So I I've left it at six dollars, but any national from an ASEAN country or Timor Leste. Um, under 30 gets a free subscription. So that kind of just worked out easily for me. Cool. <laughs> and you do, uh, I saw student subscriptions as well. Yes. Like. Yeah. And um, that's awesome. I think somebody at, I, it's always funny. I can always tell when somebody at a university has mentioned it because I'll just get 40 requests all within an hour. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Hong Kong University is giving me a shout out. Cheers. <laughs> do you know how they're giving you, like, is it they're, sharing it somewhere in a publication. I don't know. Sometimes I ask, especially like, cause some people are, I don't know. Sometimes the students seem a bit scared, like, hello, I am so-and-so and I studied this. I'm like, oh, thanks. And sometimes they're a bit more chatty and I'm like, hey, where did you find out about this? And they'll just tell me. <laughs> and usually it's just been shouted out in a lecture or yeah, something like that. Facebook groups. That's great. Again, speaks to the power of word of mouth. Yeah, totally. Um, you've been, so you've been writing a newsletter for a long time, well before they were cool, which I think is <laughs> awesome. Um, since newsletters have sort of become this more of a trend and more of a thing that people understand yeah. in the past year or two, um, how have you seen things 
change? Like, do you, did you find that people thought or talked about your newsletter differently um, early on? And has it changed your writing style at all as expectations have changed? Yeah, I think people have stopped calling it like an email blog now, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yeah, and I think there's a lot more. Yeah, I talk about this all the time. Isn't it so weird that email's cool now? Do you remember like five years ago getting an email you're like, what is this? <laughs> People said Eva was dead. They're always saying it's dead, but right now it's definitely not dead. No, it lives again. Um, Yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting to see that people are so willing to pay for an email newsletter. Like I I didn't really think that was a thing, (laughs) Um, but that's, yeah, I don't know. Because you really, I mean, you did this in 2018, which is, I think, I mean, basically when Substack started, right? And yeah. it wasn't, it really like wasn't a thing. I mean, even now it's often difficult to explain to people that this is a thing, but you pay for it. Yeah. Um, so you like really saw it in the early days, I think when. Yeah. There's just... a few, um, uh, there's an Australian woman that lives in London. I can't remember her name, but she's done a newsletter for years and years. And I think she's like old school. Am I allowed to say MailChimp on the podcast? Old school. Yes. <laughs> MailChimp <laughs> So I was kind of a bit like, oh, and I think initially mine was kind of modelled on hers where it was very like these are some interesting links I read this week and that's kind of how it started. But, like, I don't know. There's just so much room for creativity on it that I think didn't exist a few years ago or, like, some of the ideas just never exist. And this thing now with popping in audio as well, that's crazy to me. (laughs) So just like, yeah, developing so quickly. Yeah, I hope so. Mm. Yeah, it, it is funny. I feel like links were sort of the gateway drug for yeah. a lot of newsletter writers where, like, I, I mean, I think I, mean, I have a, a newsletter that I don't write nearly as frequently as yours, um, but I think early on also thought of it as this is just where I share, I dump a couple links when I've written something or whatever, and yeah. then it, then I think at some point there's this mental transition that happens where like, oh, I have this platform and people are opening yeah. my email. And then you just kind of start talking a little bit more because you're like on stage, they might as well start <laughs> saying things, right? And then it, it, it sort of develops into this narrative style. Um, yeah, that's exactly sense. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, well, cool. Thank you for joining and chatting with me. Is there anything else that you want to mention here for people that are just starting to run Substack? Oh, oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Cause I think, I think the best thing that I did was sign up to just about every free list on Substack I could find. Um, and like, I don't, not, uh, a lot of like the political reporting on there is American, which is, unless you're American, probably too much American news, but, um, <laughs> signing up and reading as many other newsletters as I could was probably one of the most helpful things I did in addition to, you know, reading the Bangkok post every day and all that. There's, there's a, I don't know, learning to do it by watching other people do it has been really, really valuable. And I think not only is it interesting and you learn so much interesting stuff reading other people's, but it, I don't know, gives you a bit of inspiration and a bit of some ideas about how you can use your own, develop your own which I don't know, I find really valuable. I mean, I still do it. I've been doing this for four years and I still read, you know, everybody's to see what's, yeah. (laughs) That's impressive. (laughs) 
a lot more to keep up with now. Oh my gosh, hopefully. yes. <laughs> and it's interesting. I feel like they're getting longer as well. Like when, like the the length of an email, I swear used to be like seven hundred words max, and now I sit there reading Hell World for an hour or two. I'm like, oh, <laughs> huge. <laughs> True. I think it is that sort of like stage mentality again. We're like, oh, I'm still holding the mic. So it's just getting <laughs> longer and longer. People keep reading it. So. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, and where should people find you if they want to check out your work? Dariemullet.substack.com, which um, oh, I almost regret giving it that name because it's <laughs> D-A-R-I-M-U-L-U-T.substack. Um, and there, I think you can find links to everything else I do as well. Yes, we'll link to it in the, in the show notes. Oh, brilliant. Awesome. Thanks, right. Aaron. Thank you so much. <laughs>